The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Um, Listen, before we get into our text this morning, I I want to invite you, um, we are really, really excited about the future here at Stone Oak. And um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we are a, um, a church planting church. So we started, we're relatively young as a church, but we've started a church, uh, another church. Uh, we've planted another church. And um, we are really excited for what the Lord has for us. And, and so I want to invite you next week we are having a, uh, what we're going to call a pastor's chat. Um, normally, I would love to just call us together and do kind of a family meeting, you know, but with everything considered, uh, what I'd like to do instead is invite you right after our service on Sunday, we are going to have just right here a little chat to talk about some of the exciting things that are coming. Um, for us as a church, and that we get to be a part of kingdom work that's beyond our walls. And so I'm excited for this. I hope you're going to be able to be back next week as we, as we do that. No need to make special plans. We'll just tack it on, all right, right at the end of our, our service next week. So I hope you're going to be able to be a part of that. Now, this morning, if you have your Bibles, would you grab them, and would you open with me to Romans 6? Specifically, verse, uh, verse 5. Um, last week, we talked about identity and why it's so important. Who are you? Who do you think you are? These questions are really important. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, who are you and what does the Bible say about who you are in Christ? Last week, we looked at the first four verses of chapter six, and we saw this beautiful picture, presentation of the Christian life being the baptized life. If you weren't with us last week, I invite you, go back and take a listen to that, because Paul paints this picture of who we are as followers of Jesus, and the Christian life is the baptized life. Well, this morning, we get to continue on. And we are going to pick up right where we left off, and we're going to make a really important distinction this morning, a really important distinction, and that is reality versus perception. Reality versus perception. So on this hand, we have reality. This is who you actually are. This is who you are, the reality that you are a child of God. This is the reality that you are forgiven, redeemed, set apart, saved. This is the reality that you are chosen, adopted, redeemed, um, set free, holy, loved, blessed. The reality of who you are in Christ. So that's on this side. This is who you are on this side. Then on the other hand, we have the reality or the perception. The perception, your perception, who you think you are. Uh, who, how you feel about who you are. And, and it, you have the reality and our perception of reality. You have the reality of your identity and your perception of the reality of your identity. Um, 
I would love to tell you that reality and perception, that these things are always the same, they are not. In fact, often there is a gap between who you are, what the Bible says about who you are, and about who you think you are in this moment. And I want to push this just a little further because this gap here between who you are and who you think you are, your identity and the perception, right? This gap right here, that is the enemy's playground. (laughs) That is the enemy's work. And I will add, that's his only work. And and here's what I mean by that. He can do nothing to change who you are. He can do nothing to, to... change your identity. He is absolutely powerless. You don't need to turn with me here. You can if you want, but Romans 8 tells us this. If you remember this powerful verse, who should bring any charge against God's elect? Uh, it's, it's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then Paul asks this, then what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. What is Paul saying here? Simply this, the enemy is absolutely powerless to change or to modify who you are, the reality of who you are in Christ. The enemy can do nothing to change who you are, your identity can do nothing to change. And because that is true, do you know what his only game plan is? The only game plan that he has left, the only one, is if he can't change the reality of your identity in Christ, he will do everything in his power to at least change your perspective of your identity in Christ. If he can't If he can't change it, he's going to do everything in his power to get you to forget who you are. To get you to forget your identity. Because church, if he can get you to forget it or to doubt it, if he can get you to to forget it or doubt it, he will have dealt the church a powerful blow. He is powerless to change your identity. But if he can change your perception of your identity, he will make you powerless. This is his game plan. As a child of God, it's the only one he has left. If he can't touch who you are in Christ, at least he can make you unaware or doubtful or forgetful of who you are in Christ. And when he does that, the people of God who are empowered by the Spirit, free from sin, free from bondage, the powerful church of Christ become powerless, puny, and shackled. I can't help but think back to um, the book, the movie, Pilgrim's Progress. So uh, a few weeks ago, we gathered out there on the lawn and we watched 
The Pilgrim's Progress. I've read this book a lot of time, many times, and every time I read it, there's something that sticks with me more than any other time, and uh, there's like something new that pops out. Well, this time going through this story, do you know what stuck with me? It was that, that moment um, when Christian, he's on this journey, right? He's on this journey. He's seen victory. He's seen trial. He's, uh, he's taken his burden off, or actually the burden was removed at the cross, right? And if you remember it, he's even been given the armor of God. This guy is looking like he's going. I mean, he is, he is journeying in power. And if you remember what happens, at some point right after, he was captured. And, and he was placed in this cage, I believe the cage of despondency, that's what it, was, what it was called. And if you remember, it's this big, nasty troll that gets him, and he's in this cage. And um, his captor was big and nasty and scary, and, and it, the, the, he looks in at, at Christian in this cage. And uh, he makes this profound statement that I think sums this up so well. He looks in at Christian and he says, I can't touch you, I can't harm you, but I have given you all that you need to harm yourself. I can't touch you, but I have put everything you need right there in that cage for you to do the work yourself, for you to harm yourself. I've given you all that you need right there. Church, in Christ, the enemy looks at you and with a very similar statement says, I can't touch you. I can't change who you are. Christ has done the work. I can't separate you from the love of God through Jesus Christ. I can't do that. I, I can't change your identity. But you know what? I've given you every tool you need to do the work of harm on your own. I've put it all, all there. I can't change your identity, but I can get you to forget it. I can get you to doubt it. I, can, I can't take away your power, but I can make you believe you're powerless. Last week, Paul showed us the baptized life is the Christian life. And, and this week, Paul is going to remind us that the Christian life is constantly, continually remembering, believing, and knowing that you are, in fact, living the baptized life. I, in fact, I, let me read our text just as a whole uh, this morning, and I just want you to notice the words that Paul uses. In Romans 6, I'm going to go to verse 11, so 5 to 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must, or you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul is saying here that the Christian life is the baptized life. The life where we are united with Christ in his death and united to Christ in his life in resurrection. That is who you are. That is who we are. The Christian life is a baptized life where the old self is crucified with Christ. That the life we were is now, we're now dead to sin. We're now no longer slaves to sin, Paul says, because we're dead to it. The life we are walking is now walking in newness of life. That's what Paul says here, living our lives in, in God through Christ. This is who we are. Paul's saying this is who we are, but more than that, if you would notice in our text, Paul is also saying that the Christian life is knowing that we are living the baptized life, that we are considering ourselves, as he says, this way. In other words, the text is about who we are, and it's about knowing who we are. So let's take this in sections together. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right off the bat, our, our English translations use this word like. Um, it, it's a fine word. It's just kind of a puny word. Because in English, we think of like as it just kind of vaguely resembles something. Um, that's not the, the word here. The word like here is, is that it is a shared common experience. It's deeper than just vaguely resembling. It's, it's, a, it's a shared common experience. So to be a Christian is to be united with Christ in a death, in his death and in his resurrection. It's strong language. Just a quick observation. This is often not the way we speak about Christ's work. We often talk about Christ's work a little bit differently than this. We often talk about Jesus dying for you, and we often talk about him dying on your behalf. That is, praise God, certainly true, right? However, there is more than that, because Paul is saying, you are united in, to Christ, in Christ. You are in Christ, united in his death and resurrection, so that his death is your death to sin, so that his resurrection is your life. And Paul calls this union, united, union. Salvation, in other words, is not just this heaven for later. It's Christ forever. Union with Christ today and tomorrow and forever. That's what union is. And then listen to how Paul expands it. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died, to, uh, has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Um, I want to pause just a minute. I, I, I don't know how many of you have heard this example, um, but there is an old example of this that I grew up hearing as a teenager. And uh, especially as a teenager. I don't know why. I heard this more as a teenager than I ever have. And maybe, maybe you have too, if you, if you grew up in the church or around the church. Um, but it was this example of two dogs. I don't know if this rings any bells, right? Example of two dogs. Um, they're on chains or not, doesn't really matter. But the one I was told is they're on chains, right? You have two dogs in your yard and they're on chains. One dog is called you know, righteousness or holiness or all the good names. And the other dog is called sin or the flesh. And um, in this example, I don't know if you've heard this example, but in this example, the question was always, teenage Justin, which dog are you feeding? Have you heard that? Maybe it's just me. Um, But I was always asked, like, which dog are you feeding are you, whenever you indulge in sin and in the flesh, it's like you're feeding that dog. And whenever you do good things, it's like you're feeding that dog. And the question was, which dog is sickly? And which dog is healthy and plump, right? That was always the, the question. Um, which dog are you, are you feeding? So, First of all, before I say anything, I get this analogy. I get it. It's um, you don't want to indulge in sin. You want to walk in obedience. All good. Please don't hear me say that. that that's bad. But by and large, this is a horrible, horrible example, especially for a teenager. Um, this example, the reason I think it's it misses it, is that this analogy leads us to forget who we are. This analogy leads us to think that we're some neutral party kind of casting votes for who we are, right? It leads us to forget identity, and at best it leads us to moralism. Do more good than bad, Don't be bad, be good, because that dog's getting big, right? It leads us to to, to moralism that causes more bondage than it does freedom. It bypasses identity and leads us to just think that that it, it doesn't address identity, it just addresses choices. And I'm not saying choices are bad. I'm just saying that choices flow from identity, and this example forgets that. All right, does that follow me? I, I, I wanna give you another analogy that I think is more accurate when it comes to our relationship with sin. Um, in, in fact, I was reminded of this, this powerful analogy this week in our preaching meeting as we gathered around this text. Uh, it's the elephant analogy. The, the elephant analogy. So it is said, I don't, I don't take care of elephants. So I'm by no measure a, a professional in this field, but it is said that if you take a baby elephant and you put it on a a leash 
and you get a, a stake and you put it in the ground, that that elephant will kind of walk around and kind of get used to its parameters and it will get used to that leash. So the baby elephant will get used to it and will accept the things the way they are. And from what I am told is as baby elephant, if you fast forward, same elephant grows up and gets a lot bigger and a lot stronger that that same elephant, if placed on that same leash, that small, dinky, little leash, that same elephant, you know, honestly, with one shake, could pull that stake out of the ground. Let's just be clear here. But that same elephant, that massive beast, will stay put. Will accept things the way they are. Now, again, this elephant could have sneezed. I think elephants sneezed. But could have sneezed and pulled that stake out of the ground. But it doesn't. Why is that? Because it's used to bondage. It's accepted it. You know what the Christian life is like when it comes to sin? It's the elephant. It's, we are this elephant that has become used to bondage. We've been in bondage since we were kids, right? It's the way it is, right? We get used to it, yet through Christ, we know that that stake has been ripped out of the ground and that the chains are no more. It's, they're gone. We're not bound anymore. But yet, all too often, just like that elephant, we're not bound by a chain. We're not bound by a leash. We're bound because we refuse to know that we're free. We're bound because we refuse to realize that we have been set free. We are like an elephant believing that we are bound when in fact we are not. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, Church, in Christ, the leash, the chain is no more. We are no longer bound. We are no longer in chains. And as we have said, I I want you to hear me again. Please hear me. The enemy can do nothing about that. The enemy can't bind you in something that has already been broken in Christ. Yet, although the enemy can't, rebind you with those chains he can sure get you to think that you are bound and just like the elephant who thinks he's on a leash the elephant who thinks he's on a leash is just as bound as the elephant elephant who's actually on a leash (laughs) to say it like bunyan and pilgrim's progress i can't touch you i can't harm you but i can give you everything you need to harm yourself i can't touch you but I have put everything you need to hurt yourself in your cage. 
truthfully, the enemy can't even lock that cage. (laughs) That's the truth. Now, if only we would be a people who see the truth and remember the truth every day. This is why the Christian life is the baptized life, and it's more than that. This is why the Christian life is continually remembering that we live the baptized life. We've been talking a lot about, uh, here, here at our church, we've been feeling this call that we can't deny to share the gospel with the people in our lives and around us, in our community. We've all felt the great brokenness and, and we have felt this call to, to, to share the gospel with the people in our lives. And we started this initiative called Who's Your One, which is just really simple. It's, it's talking about who we're going to share the gospel with in our life, right? And, and we've been praying about this and thinking about this. And as I was thinking about this this week, I um, ultimately, do you know what sharing the gospel really is? I think we, we forget this, but it's not about sharing how you feel about the good news. It's not about sharing some subjective truth that's good for me and it just might be good for you. That's not what it is. The, if the gospel was just that, no thank you. No wonder we don't want to share it. It makes me feel arrogant, like I know something you don't know, right? I, anyway, the gospel is not, sharing the gospel is not that. It, it, it's not sharing the good opinion. <laughs> it's sharing the good news. It's sharing, it's not sharing the good feeling or the good advice or the good life. It's sharing the good news, Sharing the gospel is not a subjective opinion. It is sharing the truth that more people would see the objective truth and that more people would be united with Christ and be free. That's what sharing the gospel is and that they would know that they're free. That's what sharing the gospel is. Uh, Do you remember, I was thinking about this today uh, or this week. Do you remember a long time ago when uh, way long, 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 long time ago, when the news was the news. <laughs> you know what I mean. When the news anchor, his responsibility was to tell us the news, the objective things that happened in our world that we need to know. Do you remember when they told us what would happen and not some interpreted, slanted, politicized, subjective view of it? When they would tell us not how they felt about what happened, but what happened? Do you remember the good old days? Here's the reality. When we share the gospel with people, I I want you to hear me. I want you to think about it more like you are the old school news anchors. Channel your inner Walter Cronkite. I don't know. I just heard he's old and trusted. Here's the deal. Think about it more like an old school news anchor 
and less like the 2020 election coverage. And you know what I mean by this? Because when we share the gospel, we are sharing the objective truth. Our faith is based on a real person, real events that really happened, and we are sharing the news, the truth of that taking place. That's what sharing the gospel is. We are not sharing, not responsible for sharing our subjective opinions about the truth. Now, sure, we can share it with joy because it's changed our life. But here's the reality. The news is the news. And our call is to share it. This is why Paul says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Listen how he continues. We know that there, this, there's that knowing thing again. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death is, no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul says, this is what we know. This is what we know. Paul, Paul says, we know that Christ came to live the perfect life we could not live, die the death we deserve, rose conquering death. We know that Jesus is never going to die again because death has no claim on him. His work is once and for all, for all of those who are in him. This is who we are. This is the truth of our identity. We are united in Christ. Uh, united in Christ in his death. United in Christ in his life. His death was our death to sin. His life is our life to God. This is who we are. This is our identity. And because that is true, because this is your identity, listen to what Paul now says. So you also must Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, even though this is true, even though that is your identity in Christ, even though that is who you are, you must also consider. You must also know. You must also remember that to be true. This is who you are in Christ and now the Christian life is about seeing and knowing and understanding who we are in Christ, seeing ourselves this way. Paul says, you must also consider yourselves. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You must see yourself this way. Consider yourself this way. In other words, church, it is entirely possible for those of us who are dead to sin, for those of us who are alive to Christ, to fail to see ourselves this way it is entirely possible for those who are dead to sin and alive to Christ to fail to consider ourselves this way. It is entirely possible for those who have been set free from the bondage of sin to live like an elephant, to live as though we are shackled. It's possible for those who have been made alive to Christ to live like we aren't. It's possible for reality and perception to be off. I'd like to go back to where we started. If uh, you were the enemy, 
I want you to just think about this. If you were the enemy, is this not exactly what you would do, what you would want to do? If you can't beat them, wouldn't you at least want them to think they're beaten? If you can't actually conquer them, wouldn't you at least want them to think that they're conquered? If you can't actually separate them, wouldn't you at least want them to think that they're separated? I mean, in some ways, that's just as good, right? The last thing the enemy wants is for the church to realize who we are. The last thing the enemy wants is for the church to realize that we're actually empowered by the Spirit, that we're actually free from the bondage of sin, that we're actually more than conquerors in Christ. That's the last thing the enemy wants for you. The enemy wants you to be far too content with less than that. If he can keep you from considering yourself like that, then he can keep you powerless, shackled. Again, not because we aren't empowered, not because we are actually shackled, but because we consider, consider ourselves powerless and consider ourselves shackled. I, I find it amazing that the imperative of our text, the thing that our text calls us to, it, 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 it's incredible. It's not save yourself. It's not, you know, stop, stop it and start being better. It's not that. If you notice what it is, it's not you can do it, you're awesome. It's not that. It's, as we look at this text, it, verse 11, it's consider again who you are in Christ. It's remember what he's done to save you. Remember his death and his life and remember that his death is your death to sin and remember his life is your life to God. Remember who you are. That's the imperative. And listen, there are so many things that threaten the church. There are so many things that threaten the church. I mean, I think of persecution. In some places right now, that is a real and present threat. Um, even in America, hear me, the true church is going to face persecution. We face this. We face worldliness. The, the, the threat that the church would start to look just like the world. Ugh. We face comp uh, compromise, the threat that we would seek to bend the truth to make it more appealing, as if it's ours to bend. Again, ugh. The, the, we face the threat of disunity and the threat of division, and we face politics, and we face issues of justice. We face so many challenges and so many threats, the church does. But you know the most serious threat that we face as the church? The most serious threat that we face as Christians? It's not sickness. It's not persecution. It's not trials. As a Christian, in some sense, let me explain myself. It's not even sin. Let me explain myself. How could you say that, Pastor? Church, the most serious threat that we face as a child of God 
the most serious threat that the church faces is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. When we forget, when we forget our victory, we live in defeat that's not ours. When we forget that we're forgiven, we live in shame. When we forget that we are chosen, we live in doubt. When we forget that we are free, we live in bondage. The most serious threat that we face in Christ is forgetfulness. It's because it's the only tool, as we have said, that the enemy has left. He has been defeated. He cannot defeat you. So don't, but if he can get you to live like you're defeated. If he can get you to forget, what a win, what a win that would be for him. This is why, by the way, Scripture has so much to say about remembering. I mean, just think about it. I thought just a few things popped in my head. I think of Passover in the Old Testament. What is Passover? Well, it's this, it's this way for the people of God to remember. I, uh, I think about all of the altars and all of the monuments in the Old Testament. All of them just ways to Remember, I think about the New Testament. Uh, it's not just those Old Testament saints that were forgetful. I think about the New Testament. Think about communion. Communion, what is it? Well, it's this way for us to remember. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of, of me. Because our greatest threat is forgetfulness, our greatest call is to remember. There's an old hymn that says this really well. It says, here I raise my Ebenezer. Don't think of Scrooge. Um, here I raise my Ebenezer. Ebenezer is this, this uh, Old Testament monument of remembrance. It's, what, it's this stone that Samuel puts up that's this constant reminder to the nation of Israel that God had protected them and led them to victory. So that whenever the Israelites, they walk past that stone, whenever they walk past, they would remember God's kindness to, him, to them and praise him for it. Ebenezer literally means stone of help because it reminds God's people of God's help. So the hymn says, here I raise my Ebenezer. Literally, here I raise my remembrance. Hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he'd rescue me from, from danger, interposed his precious blood. And in church, listen to this last verse. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, Bind my wandering heart to thee. What's a fetter? Well, it's, it's, it's 
a chain used to restrain a, a prisoner. So this, this old hymn is saying, Lord, let your grace, oh, that your grace would bind us to you. And why would we need that? Why would we need that binding? Why would we need that fetter? Well, because of this, prone to wonder. Lord, oh, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above us. Prone to wonder, prone to forget, prone to leave, prone to forget who our God is and what our God has done, prone to forget who we are in Christ. Um, At Stone Oak Bible, we call this gospel amnesia. Gospel amnesia. It's this crazy thing that happens when we face and experience the power of God, his presence, his forgiveness, his salvation, only to then get distracted and to forget. We forget the victory in Christ and we live in the bondage that the cross has broken. The greatest threat we face is forgetfulness and because of this, our greatest call is to remembrance. And so I believe the absolute best way for us to to finish our time this morning is through communion, for us to literally remember the way Christ told us to remember him. It's in communion that we say, yes, I am prone to forget. Yes, I am prone to wonder. Yes, I am prone to forget the gospel. And yes, I am prone toward gospel amnesia. Yes. Yes, I am prone to forget who I am in Christ. So we, we remember. Jesus knew we would face gospel amnesia. He knew that his children, that includes you, that includes me, he knew we would be forgetful. And so he gave us this practice as the church for us to push against that and for us to remember. Here's the truth. The gospel says that through Jesus, you are dead to sin, you are alive in Christ, you are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. You are in Christ. That is you. If you have responded to the gospel, if you have placed your faith, your trust in Christ for your salvation, this is you. Scripture says that if you have placed your faith in Christ for your salvation, Scripture says that you are saved, that you are forgiven, that you are redeemed and chosen, and you are loved by your God. That is who you are in Christ. That is who we are. And now we get, in light of that now, we get to consider our text, as Paul says, so you must also consider yourselves. This is considering ourselves. It's remembering who we are. So let's remember together. If you haven't received one of these, if you could slip your hand up, we will make sure you have one. Um, Here at Stone Oak, you don't need to be a member with us to remember Jesus in communion with us. If you've placed your trust in Christ, um, we invite you to remember. We know you're forgetful too. So if we invite you to remember him with us. Um, 
here in, as, we, as we take it, um, I'm going to pray for us. And then in the moments to follow, the, the team's going to lead us in a song. And in that moment, I just want to invite you right where you are to take the elements and to, to remember Jesus, remember Christ. For those who are joining us online, I want to invite you to just take a moment to reflect on what what this represents to remember. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for what your word tells us about us. We are grateful for the good news. And Lord, we repent and we confess our forgetfulness that we are so often prone to distraction and to wondering, to doubt and to fear. We are prone to forget and we're prone to leave. And so God, in this moment, we first just want to start off before we take communion and just confessing our forgetfulness. And we ask that you would help us to live out this text that says to consider ourselves, to consider the truth about who we are. Lord, in this moment, will you help all of my brothers and sisters to know who they are in and through your son. And in this moment, would you help all of us to remember, to consider ourselves. Would you allow us to take reality and our perception and bring them together in your grace? Would you help us as we remember you and as we take these elements together? In Jesus' name.